It's This Week in Sleeves with your host, the great lord, Joshua Riegel and Sleazy K. This podcast has been rated Category 3. No one under 18 may be permitted. Let's become fucking gigolos! Or not. Definitely not. Everything sucks about being a gigolo. The punishing hostess melodrama, Category 3 or Not, took hold of late 80s and 90s Hong Kong cinema, but there were times where an exchange of sorts happened that took the punishing melodrama and placed it within the world of gigolos, males, rather than females being punished. And that's what we have here in 1990s Hong Kong gigolo from the director of P-Storm. Yep, I got it. I got, I got a giggle out of him. I got a giggle out of him. <laughs> and we'll fill you in uh, who that director is. He's done a lot of Storm movies. <laughs> a lot of P too. Yeah. Also from 2017, the last gory hurrah from the team of Herman Yao and Anthony Wong in the form of the Sleep Curse. So welcome to this week in Sleaze 66. That, that's like a tongue twister on Hong mm-hmm. Kong Jigolo and the Sleep Curse. And uh, this is Sleazy Gay uh, with me, the great Lord Joshua Riegel, um, uh, feeling the allure of the Jigolo profession, but had to restrain himself and not pursue that career path based on the fantastic sights and uh, advantages that Hong Kong Gigolo presents before us. It was a real learning experience. It's put me on the path, the, the straight and narrow, let's just say. Mm. Like nursing, you know? Gigolo, nursing, Gigolo. I, I thought options. about giving it all up, you know. I was uh, talking to the wife, but she she made sure to point out that, you know, Gigoloing's not for everybody and uh, doesn't seem to produce many happy endings. And here right. we are. Like Joshua runs out before the movie is even done, before the movie. Like, <laughs> like I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. Like finish the movie. Okay, you're right. They're, they're, I'm gonna lead the jiggly revolution. <laughs> Just finish it and get to the dog shit scene, and then have a think or uh, think or two if you want to pursue this uh, line of uh, line of prof- uh, work and profession. But uh, okay, dokie, we are gonna get this uh, show on the road. This little. Um, this little tidal wide theater episode, I suppose. Uh, these movies have no true connection. Uh, Hong Kong Gigolo and The Sleep Curse. Um, the Sleep Curse is uh, one of the more uh, recent-ish Category 3 rated films from uh, the dream team of Category 3, I suppose. Uh, Herman Yao and Anthony Wong. But um, if uh, if it's on uh, on the sort of level of Ebola syndrome and untold story, we'll certainly get um, to it. It was a new film uh, for me. But uh, if you want to check out the rest of the back catalogue of This Week in Sleaze, uh, check out our website, podcastonfire.com. Uh, obviously, we're on iTunes and uh, Apple Podcasts, um, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and that way you can find our back catalogue of uh, This Week in Sleaze episodes, including uh, stuff on exploitation uh, and uh, an audio commentary on Mindfuck, a bonus episode on Mindfuck, a first episode on Mindfuck. <laughs> yes, it's not, I'm not stuttering, we did it three times. And in the future, perhaps a fourth episode on Mindfuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there will be. Why not, you know? I mean, now that the pandemic is over, maybe we can do the traveling roadshow that I always envisioned. <laughs> Where we stopped by in towns to talk about mindfuck. I think we should just put it on behind us too, you know, just uh, just letter rip, constant commentaries. Yeah, like a commentary on the commentary. 
but uh, that's a little quirky angle to uh, to that coverage. Like uh, we, we do an episode on the hardcore hardcore uh, horror hopping uh, hopping uh, vampire. Or it wasn't really hopping vampire. It was a curse across the land. We do one episode on that, uh, and then we do a bonus episode to extend our the factoids that we found on the film, and then we. Uh, then we do an actual audio commentary on the film and put it on YouTube with uh, censorship, obviously. And uh, we we do what we do because uh, because we can. We we don't sit on ideas, Joshua. We That's uh, right. we uh, use our creative instincts to uh, to, to do things three times, <laughs> which sounds very go. very productive, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, all that is available on the site, along with uh, Podcast on Fire and What's Korean Cinema and Japan on Fire and all our other shows. And I write about the variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies on my website, SoGoodReviews.com. And that's, I guess, uh, that's the end of the plugs. Uh, social media links are available on the site. Uh, this might not be topical or even connected to our show. But the fact is, you've done a series of documentaries. One is on a filmmaker I can't remember the name of. I can't remember the name of the movie other than it's something flats. But yeah, in the I'm real sure world, flats, yeah, yep, uh, God Monster of Indian Indian flats. That's yeah. right. And you you would think like that that would be designated to standard definition, kind of grungy, public domain, even who knows. And <laughs> lo and behold, the other day I read an uh, announcement that that film is coming to Blu-ray. <laughs> Could you ever believe it, Joshua, as a fan of that filmmaker's work? Yeah, and, and named up the filmmaker just to be proper here. Frederick Hobbs, yeah. Would that ever be, be perceivable, conceivable in your eyes? You know, I thought there already was a Blu-ray release, but it's still surprising that I'm not the only one who loves this weird-ass movie. But, you know, I don't, you know, it's a gamble, I would think, to be the company behind it to put up the money up to you know just to have this weird weird movie going out there but god bless them for doing it what do you know what company it was by chance i don't uh, know offhand i was going to ask if you know if the likes of uh, something weird video has moved into the world of uh, hd uh, releasing because uh, they obviously have a catalog that this would fit in well they they put out the dvd of god monster back in the day so I suspect that they're involved, yeah. And and and, and, and that means there are elements that are good enough to yeah. uh, like an access to um, something original rather than uh, putting uh, something grungy and dingy on uh, yeah. on Blu-ray. Have you pre-ordered your copy yet? Not yet, but uh, I'm looking to do it pretty soon. And right now on Amazon, I'm seeing 19.99 instead of uh, 29.95. And I am uh, very much I am pre-ordering right, right now and uh, <laughs> de- departing from the podcast duties at hand here. But uh, but yeah, you have uh, you did your own uh, personal uh, produced um, documentary on not just that film. You sort of gave an overview of the filmmaker's uh, work as well, but, but with a focus yeah. on that film, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we, uh, my weird cinema series on uh, YouTube, which it takes me like a year and a half, two years to put out an episode each time. Because you're, uh, you're furrow. I, you know, it takes a really long time, and when you don't have a whole lot of free time, it makes it worse. But like, to sit there and write, write, write. You know, trying to like get as much information. If there's anybody who knows more about the subject, finding them, picking their brain, making sure I'm not, you know, including false information and stuff like that. You know, it takes a really long time to do it right. And then uh, 
then the editing is a bitch too. So, but yeah, uh, the God Monster of Indian Flats episode or Frederick Hobbs. Yeah, that that episode uh, uh, delved into a lot of uh, Frederick Hobbs stuff and used the book Nightmare USA and uh, their interview and their section on Frederick Hobbs to kind of flesh out that episode. He's not a director that anybody knows really, and uh, the film is extremely peculiar and uh, to say the least but it's like it has something going to it it's like an lsd trip or something it, i don't know yeah yeah you kind of have to watch it. it's different than anything you'd ever see like even though like you know bad older sci-fi movies or anything frederick hobbs was like this artisan essentially the guy trained in like uh i think italy i haven't watched my own episode in a while but he trained uh <laughs> what did, what did i say what the knowledge did i have <laughs> <laughs> it all goes out the head yeah, after a little bit I, but he, I hear you. He, yeah he trained uh you know as a painter a sculptor all these things he he created he would take cars and then he would like build on top of them like paper mache and like these, these grand sculptures almost like making them into like monster looking creatures and he would like create that as like his art and he did that and he had all kinds of little um artistic and you know adventures and then he gets into filmmaking and the only thing you know that he can get is like low budget productions going and the only thing anybody on um, you know making a low budget movie back then wanted to do was a horror movie because you could take a low budget horror movie and make your money back plus a little something extra. But he always made weird movies, and uh, he didn't usually he wasn't very successful with them. Like his first movie, what was I forget the name? It was a lo- it's a lost film that uh, you know has never actually been released. It's a lost, I say, but they there are copies that supposedly like in um i think ucla's vaults or something like that anyway it was about vampires and robots and uh, all kinds of weird shit and then his final his opus was uh god monster of indian flats a movie about a giant sheep monster that somehow comes to life and uh they uh it takes over this small town like that is supposed to be modern day in this like 73 but like looks like it's everybody dresses like it's 1873 and it's never fully explained why that is and like essentially the town that the film takes place in frederick hobbs was like a big fan of it and it's like an old western area in, in nevada i believe and once a year they do this festival day where everybody in town dresses like like they're in the 1800s and uh, the film kind of takes place in a version of that. It's a very weird movie, but it's, it's freaking awesome. And and you're right, there was a Blu-ray out of it, uh, Agfa, and something we had collaborated on it, uh, on it. But I can swear I've seen a an announcement just recently. Maybe they're going 4K with it. Who knows? Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! I came! I came! <laughs> I've never. I don't think I've seen the. No, I've never seen the Blu-ray. I still never could pick yeah, up that Blu-ray. Yeah, it's a 2018 to... release, so there's something mm-hmm. weird that did go into uh, the world of HD, at least for select uh, titles. It's uh, it's preserved in some shape or form, uh, certainly. And it should be. 
and, and and certainly blu-ray and it's not inferior to 4k in case of this movie like any clarity is great you know <laughs> even if it's 1080p that is my least viewed episode of uh, uh weird weird cinema and uh but i still very much enjoyed it you, you, you gotta put a thumbnail on it with uh you uh, with your uh, with, with your cheeks uh, uh, with your hands on your cheeks like Kevin McAllister Ooh. and your mouth open and then like a little quote saying I was shook oh my <laughs> god I was shook I see that on so many reaction thumbnails it fascinates me endlessly because that's what gets people clicking the, I think it even somehow affects the YouTube algorithm it's like you the YouTube algorithm can figure it out you know no freaking clue. My most viewed episode at this point is the Pinky Violence episode. Mm-hmm. I think that's because the sexy women. Yeah, pretty Asian yeah. ladies. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah, you, you mean, just put that in the tags. But yeah, you, you got to feel like, I had no idea. You got to put that on the thumbnail as well. You won't believe what happened in this old west town. So, so yeah, do YouTube right damage, Joshua. You deserve yeah. it. You deserve it. Welcome back to the first uh, movie of this uh, episode is Hong Kong Gigolo from 1990 and plot from my review of the film. Uh, these uh, little plot strands in this uh, movie centers around a uh, tree of uh, gigolos who's a uh, madam. I suppose their mama-san is uh, the character of Maria played by Petrina Fung, a very good, good, good actress. This movie has a lot of good actresses and actors, believe it or not. No uh, all of them, all these uh, gigolos that I'll tell you about in a minute uh, are, in either, are in need of uh, hiding their profession from their loved ones, in- of course, including David, played by Simon Yam, whose sister, Meg Lam, is a policewoman. Uh, her superior, Wilson, played by Robert Middleton, has laid his eyes on David Doe, but uh, mm-hmm. since uh, he has uh, refused him, uh, Wilson sets out to sets out to screw up uh, whatever he can in David's life. The character of Horse, that's a translation for you, played mm-hmm. by Alex Mann, is the veteran, but he's on the downslide and uh, he's not being able to um, keep custody of his son, uh, so... Um, it's uh, not going well in his profession or in his private life. And um, his uh, next uh, steps and his path becomes increasingly uh, desperate and uh, and darker. And finally, we have Joe, played by Raped by an Angel's Mark Chang, who's the yeah. new kid in the group. And he goes along with every perverted desire his uh, clients uh, wish. Uh, so much so that a videotaped arrangement uh, leads to a major trouble with, with the law. So um, that's uh, they're all in uh, trouble in some shape or form. This film is headed by a pretty solid director, but not in the field of category three and exploitation films necessarily, and his name is David Lamb. Um, he's a veteran of 20 films between 1986 and now, he's still working, and he's uh, been working continually for a couple of years since he found success with a particular film series, and then more on that in a bit. But he made... Uh, uh, initially, in uh, 1986, uh, quite an excellent family melodrama called Goodbye, Mammy. And uh, he uh, went on to crank the melodrama, making a hostess drama called Girls Without uh, Tomorrow, a.k.a. Call Girl 98, starring uh, Maggie Chung. 
Uh, he also made a female-driven prison film with a quite quite a bit of grit and teeth. That was called Woman Prison. You had a movie called Doctor's Heart. That was a good-hearted and well-intended piece about social welfare. It wasn't necessarily his forte. Solid enough movie, though. Then Hong Kong Gigolo comes before us in 1990 uh, from his own production company as well. After that, you had a movie called Powerful Four that saw him loosely making a true-life film about Hong Kong police corruption that eventually led to the formation of the Independent Commission Against Crime, ACAC. And in the film Asian Connection that he co-directed, David Lam, we saw quite a nicely professional cop-actioner. It starred Danny Lee and the movie jumped between Hong Kong and Taiwan and that had the added benefit of realistic sync sound to go along with uh, the different um, geographic locations. So it meant that stars Danny Lee and Michael Chow performed in sync sound Cantonese and when they relocated to Taiwan they performed in sync sound Mandarin. So that was uh, nice to have. And his last film for a while was in 1989 and then in 2014 Joshua he popped up again with Said Storm or Z Storm that again involved the ICAC. And uh, to set the stage, and uh, I'd, I'd like to quote Love HK Film and their review of the film, quote, of um, uh, their review of uh, Set Storm or Sea Storm, quote, men in suits yelling at each other equals, <laughs> equals money or something. Uh, Set Storm may be the first official Cold War copycat. That was a successful uh, movie, Cold War. Taking that award-winning film's uh, cops versus corruption hook and adding in nifty local themes for a wannabe Sightgeist grabbing thriller. The filmmakers succeed superficially. End quote. And uh, I turned to my friends Paul Fox and Kevin Ma of the East Screen West Screen podcast to f- help me fill out this background sec- section on the Storm films uh, because there are plenty of them. So again, we had 2014's uh, uh, Sea Storm or Z Storm, 2016's S Storm, 2018's L Storm, then P Storm in 2019, and what looks to be the final, he still giggled, uh, and what looks to be the final movie, uh, we had G Storm in 2021. Can, can I say that S Storm just sounds like you're like self-censoring for shit storm? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, <laughs> that also made me internally giggle. <laughs> for first P Storm, that was a good one, good giggle. S Storm is a little bit uh, subtle, but good enough giggle, so... Mm-hmm. Joshua has gotten all he needs uh, out of these movies uh, already. Said we're good for the day, baby. The movies all star Lewis Koo. And uh, they could be described as procedural TV shows more than anything. Um, you know, each movie will have a new case of the week. It's that type of structure. They mm. started at quite low budget, but um, a budget is required to score Lewis Koo, of course. He's, a movie, he's an actor in demand and uh, one that you pay premium for. Uh, but uh, the movies got marginally bigger budgeted across the series, and the action set pieces, set pieces got noticeably improved. The direction, again, by David Lamb, he made all of these. It isn't single out. Uh, it's even called shoddy across the various re- reviews of the film. But ultimately, the series pulled in decent money and found a box office uh, footing in both Hong Kong and mainland China. So that's why we've seen producer Raymond Wong having his foot on the gas, uh, cranking these out um, every other year or so. And again, again, there's been rumblings uh, that uh, 2021's G-Storm was indeed the last, uh, and uh, whether the makers were creatively fatigued or they experienced a drop in um, earnings. Um, no, it's still a pandemic it was released in, but still uh, you can make an analysis of sorts, I suppose. 
I can't say why why did this seems to be designated to be the last one, but um, G Stone was released as late as uh, 2021, and that was during a shutdown of theaters in Hong Kong uh, due to uh, COVID. So there, there's still a struggle uh, in terms of that. So we'll, we'll see if um, the IC AC adventures uh, continue or not. Uh, I'm sure Lewis Koo would say yes because uh, he does and he makes and uh, bless him for it. But uh, we'll see. One of them I think is a, pr- a prison set movie, maybe Peace Storm, as a matter of fact. And so the characters might go undercover or they might be sent to jail. Who knows? But um, I'm sure I'll get around to watching one or two of them because uh, it is Lewis Koo. And um, I'm sure that can't be a bad thing through and through. Going back to Hong Kong Gigolo, its box office performance back in 1990. It was actually not bad. It earned about 10.2 million Hong Kong dollars. And I think this is 1990. I, I think it, this is just a loose theory based on absolutely no research other than the old gut feeling. I think the local audience has started to get a sense of the allure of the Category 3 rating. What sort of sensations it could offer, whether softcore, period erotica, comedies, melodrama, spiced up with nudity and stars you already liked and stars to remember uh, uh, that worked in the rating, all of that sort of combined. And you can contrast it with other Category 3 movies of 1990, which were the likes of Erotic Ghost Story, that earned 11.2 million. You know, you had Amy Yip in that one, so persons would uh, remember her and uh, would go back to the cinema for her. Can we see something? No. Can we see something? No. Still only side boop. (laughs) (laughs) No, damn it, they got our money again. (laughs) Caught me again. You also had Ho Fan's comedy Temptation Summary that gave us the Category 3 Superman fantasy and that got to similar numbers as um, Hong Kong Gigolo, around 10 million. And uh, there were solid numbers. Obviously, they couldn't take on the big earners of that year, though. And Hong Kong's top film of the year was the Stephen Chow comedy All for the Winner, earning 40 million. And Stephen Stephen Chow was uh, in a number of uh, places in the top 10 uh, in uh, three movies of his, was in the top 10, including the number two, film which was God of Gamblers 2 with uh, Andy Lau uh, not with with Chiang Fat but with Andy Lau and then you had movies in, in the top 10 like Her Fatal Ways The Chinese Ghost Story 2 and the Chinese New Year film The Fun, The Luck and The Tycoon uh, they were all hovering around the 20 million mark as part of the uh, top 10 and the latter um, The Fun, The Luck and The Tycoon is a Hong Kong remake of Coming to America starring Chiang Fat <laughs> I've not seen that it's uh, they don't do the sort of like uh, that he's um, a prince of uh, a distant kingdom or anything. He, he's a, he's a wealthy boy, but clearly they are riffing on uh, coming to America. There's no scenes of uh, uh, women washing his penis or anything. They they don't do that. Oh, well, I don't even want to see it anymore. I mean, it's a Chinese New Year film. You have to be proper. You have to be uh, nice about these things. You can't uh, you can't be all R-rated like. Coming they at to least America. have jerry curls, right? Uh, nope. They uh, they, they have at most uh, fast food. I think. Well, they have, they have Nina Lee Chi, you know, Jet Li's wife uh, with the big boobs. And they make a joke about Hello. that, I think, twice. Uh, she's the lady in uh, Tiger on Beat that uh, Chiang Fat beats up. Yes, that happens. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's uh, get on to the review of uh, Hong Kong Gigolo. Solid. Um, and, and I think, you know, he, he had his uh, streak, David Lam, of making punishing melodramas akin to this. As I said, he did the hostess uh, movie Girls Without Tomorrow, and he's continuing that streak here of being punishing to uh, towards these characters within this uh, profession. It attempts substance and heartache and harsh violence, uh, which is delivered in decently professional fashion. It, it's it's not terribly eager to be a nudie film either. It's, uh, it's eager to do the downward spiral that eventually ends up in violence and uh, then we, we get some 
know, some erotic scenes and steamy scenes uh, every now and again, but uh, it doesn't have these scheduled scenes with uh, random characters having sex and then back to the movie or anything. Passes the time adequately, uh, adequately as uh, as a melodrama and uh, quickly digested without sticking with you type of um, uh, type of time. But 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 it is uh, cool to see it because it is from a year where these movies, category three rated films, they weren't uh, made as quick and fast and in as high numbers. They were still getting going. So that's why this is more of a movie rather than. Um, just a random quick sex sex time mm-hmm. so so it's uh, solid enough and um got a good cost obviously too so so in short uh, what did you think of a uh, hong kong gigolo other than wanting to be a gigolo after watching it <laughs> or in the middle of watching it yeah. not by the end by sure. the end you're like eh, it's maybe not a good idea yeah. i cannot say i liked it i liked it quite a bit i don't know it's a um, real movie it's a real movie for once you know, I'm always drawn to like the dark uh, stuff, you know, anything that's kind of like got a slightly disturbing edge to it. And I think that this film like develops one of those later in the movie, you know, plus, you know, everything's plotted uh, fairly well. You keep up with everything. The actors are all obviously, uh, you know, awesome. I think it's a very solid little movie. I mean, it's not going to be anybody's favorite or any go to category three top five list or anything like that mm. but it's strong strong for what it is you know it's yeah. not, I, I expected it to just be another like gigolo comedy you know that's what i was anticipating but uh i got something one more than that yeah it's a you can giggle at some things here and there but certainly it never mm. really um, attempted a goofy tone uh, it, it seems like everything's going well from the get-go though it's a hella good life you're working out entertaining entertaining the ladies and good-looking ladies as well yeah and, uh, yes uh, alex man moving in here uh you know being all slick and simon yam being all slick and mark cheng being being all uh, slick and uh they're all fit um and, and alex man is an interesting casting choice uh that very much makes sense out of the trio because he's not this conventional hottie or anything he carved out a you know I, I don't know his roles in tv granted but he carved out a, a sort of image in movies as a character actor and uh, that could um, bring it up a notch uh, be uh, be kind of vile uh, be uh, be a baddie you know he's in as tears mm-hmm. go by and tragic hero rich and famous so he can do anger and uh, that works very well for this role because he is in the role of the less successful and edgier of the three characters he has that anger in him it's not going as well and mm-hmm. he hits he hits a boiling point quite early in the film that seems like it's early but the, arguably it could have been brewing before the movie we can imagine that his frustration is building he talks about this is a temporary job for him it doesn't seem like he has the option of getting out because mm-hmm. he's in a situation where he's dependent on um, dependent on money, so they established that early. Granted, he has a little goofy scene with uh, with, with a French lady in the beginning of the film, <laughs> uh, where you know, she slaps him in the bar, like, and then he walks up to her room and says, "I'll offer a massage," and she pulls him in like she's uh, for- forgotten all about the bar attempt to pick her up so they have a little uh, have a little uh, setup that Ron, they're, they're all rendezvous yeah, yeah. Ooh, ooh. well done well done <laughs> i think that's french uh, but, <laughs> but uh, you, you know what i mean with uh, with alex uh, you know being cause he, he he's not the conventional sort of like uh, this uh, ladies man but the, the role is designed to be a lot more tragic so for, for me it made sense to 
to cast him and he's a good romantic actor he actually is so i guess I want to ask is it uh, he, he represents the melodrama of the film he really does so was that ever an element that uh, was hard to get used to or you think melodrama has a, has a place in it uh the tragedy has a place in the film does he overdo it a little bit at times yes but i mean it's kind of like par for the course i feel with for local audiences it very much is yes and it's like yeah it's overdone he's a very dedicated like, actor I always thought yeah, so absolutely and i think that he's certainly not bad at what he's doing at all and i think that uh, he's he makes himself memorable for sure like when you're watching it you, you remember him from you know every scene you know if that makes sense sure. like there's no confusing you know his character and then later in the movie like you know i, t- I was telling you off uh, air how my wife sort of picked up uh t- after a certain point and uh one of the more disturbing scenes in the film features him and uh it's very you know wrought with uh drama mm. but uh i, I use that scene to like continually refer to him and we'll get to there at that point um as it gets along but i i come into these movies kind of expecting a little melodrama even the most hardcore of comedies it's still gonna have you know we have to have something to keep the movie going so when they delve into drama they go all out with it Mm -hmm. so it's expected and confining a lot of it to this one character to me kind of works like you gotta know what to expect i think throughout the movie I think he he's uh, he has the um, experience to go down these melodramatic roads, and uh, obviously as a crier as well. He's a very good crier, actually, in yeah. uh, in, uh, in movies. Uh, but um, it, it felt uh, fairly affecting, uh, in particular when when it just seems like it's never ending. This mm-hmm. uh, streak of bad luck, yeah. But uh, we certainly what? get to that. There, there there is some, as I said, there, there there's some. It's not always um, sexy clients that. Um, come these guys way and uh one of the earlier adventures tasks jobs for simon yam is uh, to be a facilitator of so of sorts because uh he's it seems like he's been hired by an older bald man and i mean is this is this a uh, good goofy stuff to see that uh, all kinds of clients will um, come their way and uh, they just have to perform the task i mean is it good goofy stuff or does that stray from the seriousness of the film you think oh i think it's very much welcome i mean it's a gigolo movie you know like we were talking i mean i kind of expected it to be all-out comedy anyway but mm. uh you know having just a little bit here and there makes for to me mm. all the better yeah. yeah i like that he um and i don't know if this is uh the way you have to think that uh, this is 1990 uh kinks uh were perhaps certain kinks were perhaps <laughs> not as common back day back right. then because simon says that uh, i will do most anything but i won't do anything involving masks whipping and i won't put on a dress but uh, ultimately i'll do anything else and you'd think like whipping and putting on a like i said uh like a classy sex mask uh, a la ice white shot or whatever it doesn't seem too mm-hmm. weird but maybe in 1990 those kinks weren't as uh, developed or explored by by the global populace so, so, so i don't know it, it, it seems like he, i'm drawing the line at no no whipping and no mask i don't think he was much into the snm Simon, uh, you know, one of the best actors in Hong Kong and this. You have to remind yourself, Joshua, that making these movies weren't akin to mainstream actors going into the pornography industry. 
He really wasn't. Uh, like appearing in one of these movies, at least not for men. For women, it could be a dicier to get out of this swamp, especially if you start out in it. But certainly mm-hmm. for, for men, they, they could navigate uh, the ratings and uh, softcore material and uh, and get away with it um, easily. So I, I always found this uh, very fascinating that uh, this belongs to the mainstream industry. It really does. And, and, and we're not, uh, we're, we're, we're used to it, you and I. So it's not a shock shocker uh, that Simon Yam does a movie like this, does a movie like Don't Stop My Crazy Love For You and parades around with a mannequin and then, you know, has sex with a woman he stalks and then she shoots his dick off. Yeah. <laughs> it's all dicky. And, 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 a few, and a few years later he wins an award for a drama. It's not strange. I always think back on this example. It might be a very terrible, terrible example. Back in the day when they were trying to get American Psycho off the ground, uh, they had DiCaprio attached to it. A young one. And he was like, oh my god, if he's gonna do that, everything, he's gonna ruin himself. Oh, Jesus, it's the most fucked up thing ever. You can't do it, you can't do it. And we, we know the movies, obviously, that it wouldn't have killed his career. But contrast that with Hong Kong, I don't think there, there was that extensive discussion no. when it came to these projects. Making an untold story wasn't career suicide or a gigolo movie or a Dr. Lamb, you know. And in Hollywood, it seems like uh, back then, anyway, when something somewhat edgy, maybe sexual as well, was going to be made, announced, everybody went, ah! <laughs> what's, he, what's he doing? And now, maybe it's different in Hollywood now, but it's certainly no one like cares in Hong Kong. It's just movies. No, it's it's the same. I feel now. I don't feel like much has really changed. You know, everybody's goal is to get involved in the Marvel Universe or whatever and, you know, make these very safe Hollywood films, you know, doing anything remotely off the grid. Mm. Typically, I don't know if it's a good example or not, but like even just straight to video films and stuff or straight to DVD or straight to on demand or whatever they call it now, kind of you get wrapped up in that and you shoot one or two and the next thing you know that's all they're doing i mean you look at bruce willis these days and you look at uh nicholas cage even though nicholas cage or or, or, or don't you dare to bad bad mouth no there's nothing everybody loves nicholas cage but that's right everybody loves me okay i'm a pig (laughs) and and he is the one who kind of bounces back though like he's got some higher profile you know things coming up i think but like I, I, by the way, I, by way I, gotta, uh, I gotta interrupt you. One of my mm-hmm. favorite things. I, I, I love Nicolas Cage. I, I, I love Pig, and I'm looking forward to um, at the time of uh, recording uh, that movie where he plays himself. It isn't released yet, but when it is, I'm on that like. Uh, but he he made some interview. He was talking about oh, whenever I get to the UK, uh, I like to I like to get shortbread. Uh, I, I quite like shortbread, and I was like, God, I love you, Nicolas Cage. Like. <laughs> Everything and anything comes out of this this guy's mouth, and he's super intelligent, and he's super fantastic, and uh, uh, I just love him a bit. Shortbread, I like shortbread. <laughs> uh, but 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 yeah, I guess you can contrast the so like, like I don't know if you would be allowed as an actor in Hollywood right now if you're part of um, any Marvel or DC to even contemplate something edgier. Like imagine if American oh. Psycho would be rebooted, and Tom Holland said like I'm I'm very much interested in that, and like Marvel says no, you're not. Yeah, but if they rebooted it, you know, they'd get even further away from the source material. You're not going to see people getting their teeth drilled in or anything like that. Hmm. But yeah, I feel like once you get involved in one little segment like that, like on the 
offshoot of Hollywood or what have you, you get kind of lost there. Mm. Like I was talking about like Bruce Willis, you know, he will eventually probably make another big Hollywood movie or what have you. But, you know, if that's unsuccessful, then he will might spend the rest of his days doing these uh, low budget, you know, shit work or what have you. But, and that's just plot stuff. But like, if you, you know, you're not going to catch any halfway decent star starring in anything that's like like some kind of gore hound horror movie. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. You're not going to see any, you know, even if they were like super interested in that topic and just wanted to do it, they, they wouldn't do it because it would fuck their career up, I feel. Yeah. The likes of Mark Cheng has bounced between big movies and small movies. Uh, he, he did a movie called Naked Poison 2. It was unrelated to Naked Poison 1, an old classic. Yeah, but uh, Naked Poison 2 was a ripoff of Memento, but, but a porn version of Memento. And it was shot on video, but Mark has bounced back and done big movies. Shit, he was in War. He was in uh, a Jet Li Statham movie, War. So it's not like he, as soon as he touched base with uh, DTV on video, he was fucked. So it, they, they do bounce back, and it's, a, it's not a big thing. So it, it's interesting to see the track record of uh, someone like Simon Yam and Alex Manda. There's no biggie. They're, 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 it, it this is not pornography. This is not mm. uh, the sex industry. So, mm. so it's all good. Um, the movie, as we, we sort of hinted at, it, it, it's, it's not just this parade of uh, gigolo activities. They're, they're quite quick to introduce life outside of the profession, uh, such a shattered parental units in the case of Alex Mann and his ex-wife and uh, th- that gives us melodrama but it, that gives us some some character depth and some real insight into that life is closer to, to profession than you might think and they're, they're obviously not on the right side of the law and uh, Simon Yam has a sister that is a police officer you know at some point the, these things are gonna collide in a big bad way and uh, they, this movie represents that sort of powder keg uh, powder keg uh, going boom uh, eventually mm-hmm. with, with melodramatic strokes but still delivered in a professional uh, professional manner as a story and also it's certainly solid made as a film it's not as I said a category free film with the usual one time director someone's uncle probably uh, someone's cousin making a movie uh, you have no one time actors in vanilla colored, colored rooms and uninspiring sex scenes and with Pauline Chan's hostage footage in the shower like it's nothing <laughs> like that <laughs> it's quite uh, fascinating to sometime watch a movie like this after having watched the types of movies we have and see that there's actual movies to be made using this content you know almost should go back and watch that one day i i I giggled writing that and cried at the same time pulling chance (laughs) hostage footage in the shower but 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 you know the off hours the the jiggler off hours and the family drama did that sort of did that um play well with you uh, did that uh, form a picture of uh, of these uh, characters in the in their own uh, especially simon and alex's uh, character was that welcome to have that uh, uh, added activity uh, yeah absolutely I, you know you know it, it can be really overwrought to bring like play the card of having like the little kid involved and you know yeah. and whatnot and old horse's uh son being involved and everything but it worked for me. I, even though I know it can be a little bit over the top, I think that for the movie, I mean, I, I, it drew me more to his character. And same thing for the home life of uh, Simon Yam's character mm-hmm. with uh, his sister, who was a police officer, and the two of them, how they 
she she's not aware of his business life but they continually seem to kind of run into each other yeah so she, uh, you feel like she has her suspicions and his mother how you know kind of tight knit this family is and he's holding back this big secret all that stuff you know it's realistic it's played uh realistic and it works i feel like you know it's not as over the top as it could be especially in the case of the you know the son that uh horse doesn't get to here is going to be moving away to america soon if you start to list what's happened there's really and like an ungodly amount of bad luck and bad streak for these characters but yeah. within the movie it doesn't seem like that exhausting if right. you were to list all the things that happen, I think that's a credit to the sort of balance they they achieve here with the script that David Lamb and his pacing, writers. Pacing, the pacing works. The, uh, you know, the like you said, the scripting. You know, it doesn't come off as over the top, and it's not scene after scene of bad luck. You know, everything's spaced out very well, and it seems more realistic than a lot of the um, you know the worst films that we cover. No. And they try to paint a picture as well of um, of um, what is brewing in society and in politics, uh, you, know, you know, human rights and uh, fears of instability in uh, 1990s Hong Kong and, uh, and even, you know, people in the legislative world do higher gigolos in this uh, in this case. So they're, they're trying to be mature about it. Again, they're not being uh, they're not being goofy about it. Like they're not, you know, the person in the legislative uh, She's not there to be uh, this uh, sort of like, uh, I have out-of-control kinks, but uh, during the day, I'm a proper lawyer, and I think they're not uh, portraying it that way and, and going for the sort of low low joke. Yeah. I, I suppose the character that um, could make it goofy, perhaps take you out of the drama, would be the, the Wilson character, the, the very much gay uh, police officer mm-hmm. in an authoritative in in a position of a forge, you know he's not this regular beat cop or anything he's uh, he's an inspector or or forge to figure and uh, him being so hot for david so super hot <laughs> for david i suppose he's simon yeah yeah of course you of course know, i mean wouldn't you of course of course any day 24 <laughs> 7 <laughs> The the thing I think that saves it is that he seems like a decent enough actor. You know, Robert Middleton sort of has the he has yeah. the sort of a Freddie Mercury look to him, and uh, but but he doesn't see like a random guy they pulled in. So granted, they ask him to be on all the time and shouty, and when he doesn't get his way, he's going to be evil. But somehow it's laced with a little bit more professionalism than you're used to when dealing with Western actors. I mean, he's essentially a supporting actor here and a key one, and that that made it helpful. And also, when it all gets very angry, very vindictive, and very violent, violent, it tends to get a little bit scary too. And that that's when you have uh, have to strike a balance between your, your over-the-top bad guy needs to feel a little bit edgy, feel a little bit dangerous. And I think decently so, Robert Middleton is up to that task, even though it's a very broad, you know, let's make the Westerner a super gay character. When he doesn't get his way, he's a stabby character. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't seem like much of a worthy role, but, but I thought within the context of this uh, increasingly violent and dangerous story, that very much worked for me. I didn't think he needed to have that bowl of rice in every scene and then go, oh, your rice stinks. <laughs> every, I didn't think he needed to do that the whole movie, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Did you think that added anything to the story? <laughs> like this, uh, let's do a bit better tomorrow stuff. 
but for 90 minutes. <laughs> they, they saw tomorrow and I was like, that's it. That's the movie. They don't even um, have him um, speak English it's that much. Sticks. I would have liked, I would have liked the spin-off uh, movie for the character in a better tomorrow too that wants to talk to his greasy manager <laughs> <laughs> i want to know that guy's story like never mind the guy who threw the rice i want to know what's even greasy manager <laughs> but you know in terms of westerners i mean how, how does he do robert middleton uh give, given a chance to actually be in the movie be a supporting actor and be uh be the bad guy how do you think he does uh, versus at least the uh, other westerners in hong kong cinema <laughs> compared to those two guys give him an oscar <laughs> right away <laughs> Such a low bar. Uh, no, I'm I'm with you entirely. I think he's I think he's very good in his role. Even though like uh, I like the contrast of him being a police officer in one scene, scene, and then in the next he's a character from uh, what's that Al Pacino cruising. <laughs> he's a character from cruising, right. like him walking around with his um, leather jacket and whatnot. Or, I mean, his leather vest, I should say. It's very much out. Let's just yeah, oh, yeah. I expected, you know, obviously, um, 90s Hong Kong cinema, you're not going to always get the best uh, representation of uh, any LGBTQ character. No. But uh, in this one, they're, but, they're totally evil. That, that's sort of underlying <laughs> message. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily think it was that offensive, honestly, like watching it. Uh, yeah, the guy is. They don't do. They, it's not like it. he he has a dialogue all the time. I want to. I want to be in your ass. I want to be in your ass. Like <laughs> it, it leaned more towards like as soon as he's rejected, rather yes. politely by Simon Yao. Yes, that, that, then it's your lethal bad guy that's um, going to put people in danger, and it's not about. It's like, uh, what him. I liked about it was you don't have just like a like a gay character stalking him. These are my natural. This is what I do naturally when I'm lusting after someone or what have you. Mm-hmm. He approaches Simon Yam's character in the creepiest way possible. You know, the guy's just a creep. And uh, regardless like of the He becomes his, uh, what, what do they call them in the gym? Uh, your spotter, the, the guy who uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. who makes sure that your uh, your weights don't fall on your neck or your head or whatever. Simon Yam is lifting like a two-pound weight. <laughs> <laughs> strong. He's, doing, he's strong. doing... He's doing these, um, oh God, what do you call them, like fly curls? Right. With like, literally, with like two or three pound weights. I was very unimpressed with the, uh, uh-huh. what, Simon's smart. He's like, I know we may have to shoot this scene a couple of different times, and I don't want to like, wear myself out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fuck it, I'm going to I'm, make, I'm like making ten I'm, movies today, so I can't wear exactly, myself out. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to go ahead, and I'm just going to grab the lightweights, you know, and it may look like a, a, a wuss, but... That's what I'm going to do. And you know what? If he had to shoot it a few times, he didn't get tired. So good on him. But anyway, so he's doing these flies. He needs no help because they're two pound weights. And the guy comes up behind him like, and sits down on the bench and like creepily puts his hands uh, underneath uh, his uh, axillary, his uh, armpits, and like is you know pretending to help lift him. And... What does he say? He does say to come on to him with like this terrible line. Yeah, he's pretty. He really, he pretty much says what he wants to do with him. Yeah, you know? it's like straightforward. Oh, yeah, something like we should sleep together, like straight. You know, sure. What he is is he is the creepy heterosexual category three guys who sit there and do the grass bust sign and whatnot. <laughs> but he's gay. 
And he also has power, and he's also used to killing. Yeah. So it makes him kind of a dangerous character. He does that, and Simon's just like, nah, no. The only thing he says at the end is, like, I'm not very good at fencing, which is, like, I guess some kind of, like, penis-to-penis joke or what have you. Sure. But uh, he overall, he's like, I, throughout the movie, he's like, I can introduce you to some guys. Uh, I'm not gay. I don't do that. Um, yeah, exactly, because he he, he he states that he doesn't take male customers because you know, right. some gigolos might. And so he, and he knows dudes that will, you know? So he was trying to help him out. So, yeah, I didn't feel like it was, like, just... He's not walking around in a tutu, you know, even though he does wear, like, the leather and stuff at times. Sure. He's not the worst representation. It's not that terribly offensive. It's a gay character who's a villain, yes, but I feel like... There's certainly worse, and I hope it doesn't offend anybody. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure it's not very progressive as a matter sure. of fact, but still, when, when the movie st- starts to crank I it's, it's so much worse. Of course, I mean, it's a Westerner, too. They can do whatever the hell oh they God. want with him to, to um, play uh, play up uh, his goofiness and his super gayness to the local audience, and they can mm-hmm. laugh at him. They, they could have done that, because um, he has no say in this um, I'm right. sure it's it's a Hong Kong movie. We do it. We want it with you. He certainly felt edgy and dangerous as uh, the violence escalates and uh, got fairly affecting as we watch Alex Mann losing so much and the ungodly number of setbacks could have been, as I said, such a turn off because there's too much of them. But it seems like it's based up uh, out enough where the darkness and the violence does and really feel like it. You, you you flinch every now and again that there's a failed hostage negotiation scene that's very well put together when uh, one person gets shot in uh, in both the legs, right? Mm-hmm. That's a rather terrifying scene, actually, especially when you know that the Wilson character probably put that person in danger, willingly. Mm-hmm. You know, the only thing I didn't like so much was um, what did he do to make that any more dangerous than the situation already was he just sent her by herself i guess yeah i think uh, yeah she um it, it was uh, too too much of a dangerous situation and she was uh, way too well, like there should have been uh, some more safety measures in there rather than just sending her in um, uh, I, I do think they could have stressed then, that a then little then again more. i don't I know how uh, how these situations actually work what's the protocol a la 1990 right. in hong kong so i really shouldn't if they'd have had someone sitting there saying that's against our protocols or what have you, and maybe even had him like refuse to have her wear a safety uh, vest, like a, a bulletproof vest, maybe, yeah. and be like, no, no, he might, uh, you know, take offense to you wearing the vest. Keep the vest here, you know. If he did, if they, I sure. think they could have hammered that home with like just a couple of a couple of extra lines of dialogue. But anyway, sorry. yeah, yeah, I think because it was not that character's. Um first time at doing that uh, uh, that, that yeah. character was a hostage uh, negotiator mm-hmm. so so sure it, it can feel a little bit uh, shaky in that uh, in that way that structure but uh, i i did find uh, i did find it appealing the way it started to crank violence and the character within being so angry and so vindictive and and the technical execution of violence is is very good for your old 1990s bloody Hong Kong cinema with good scripts and um, rather distressing pieces of violence involving uh, gunshots and what have you. And the movie mm-hmm. ha- had a proper action director on this. Uh, Tony Leung Siu Hong has uh, made a, a number of uh, different uh, different movies and different types of action. He started in martial arts, started Monkey Kung Fu, 
uh, with uh, Ching Zedong and then, you know, action directed Magic Crystal, My Neighbors Are Phantoms. Uh, he was the one that directed, um, you know, stuff like uh, Super Fights and Blood Moon, those English language seasonal films. And he did action on No Retreat, No Surrender uh, 3, I want to say, the one with Keith Vitale and Lauren Avedon. So, yeah, so t- Tony really got around. So, he, t- for, to have him on this genre to stage some violence, stage some stunts. It looks very good on the movie. There's a very terrifying stunt involving Mok Cheng's character chased by a car that it goes up on uh, two wheels. That's like, crazy. That scene was crazy. I'm I mean, I, you're, sure, you, you can describe it. Uh, hopefully they built a ramp that uh, somewhere am- amongst those barrels. As... I, bu- I believe that there was, but it still doesn't make it any less like super dangerous. Essentially, you have character Joe, Mark Cheng. He, he's running... And uh, the car is behind him, and they're out, like pretty much out uh, in a field that's kind of on the side of a mountain. Um, now, why all these blue barrels are there, I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, they have these blue barrels. Many are laid horizontal, most are laid vertical. Well, he goes and runs next to the vertical ones with these horizontal ones basically behind him, and this car goes up has to be on a ramp essentially and he must have two feet three feet to tuck into the corner of these barrels to protect himself and uh not get crushed by this car that basically rides right over him they they do it in two takes each take looks dangerous yes yes because you see him go under the car of a stunt person i don't think mark did that but uh, yeah yeah he must the balls of steel mm because that look scary so so you got that sort of action hit as well within this um, movie that isn't that that dingy it isn't a pornographic movie it's a solid uh, it's a solid melodramatic uh, drama and thriller and uh, um and in 1990 these were more common than in 1993 when so many of these were made and most of them up to sex factor you know those were the years of charlie cho and charlie cho didn't appear in these types of solid movies all across the board, you know, when you had him, mm-hmm. you would, uh, you, you would get the yucks going, you know, rather than, uh, <laughs> rather than the, the, the tough, um, affecting, gory, lethal melodrama that we, that we have here. So it's a, it's a very solid, uh, solid time and a nice contrast of you've uh, been in this, um, this grungy hole of, uh, of, <laughs> of sex movies often involving Charlie. It's nice to see that, that they tried. And in 1990, I think there was room to try. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why this uh, sort of stands out. So I'm going to end, end my note right there. I only have one note uh, on, um, on the writers uh, on the film, but I'm going to hand it over to you to see if you want to say anything else. Well, uh, Mike Abbott shows up at one point as a stripper. Yes. And I thought that was M- Mike Abbott, awesome. the ninja. <laughs> the ninja. He's a ninja. Anyway, he showed up. Yeah, that's about the only thing I really want to mention. It's like, uh, if you've ever wanted to see Mike and like uh, the skimpiest uh, little banana hammock you could imagine, this is the movie for you. I wish I would have knew this when I put together my uh, IFT Films and Arts video because. I'd have found some way to get that clip in there. Yeah, I'd forgotten about this cameo in this one, but uh, Mike was uh, Mike Abbott was um, was a working westerner, and um, this was work. 
twenty dollars is twenty dollars yeah, for for an hour or so. But uh, <laughs> so so he didn't get uh, the the Robert Middleton sort of uh, scripted uh, treatment. This was um, <laughs> this was uh, more goofy, but 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 not not too goofy for for like the movie. Of course, it had little light light stuff here, and there, there were clients with a, a bit more uh, some kooky kinks and some strange sex positions that even Simon Yam couldn't measure up to as easily as uh, others um, other sex positions in his uh, line of work. But they they never like may ch- change tone on you to the point where like when you switch back to Alex Mann's tragedy that, that, that you you didn't get dizzy from those tonal shifts for once. Mm-hmm. I mean, so sometimes I really like those because it's fun. But um, the movie kept it kind of reined in and kept everything um, even toned as much as possible as possible. Two mainstream writers wrote this. One of them was a woman, Sandy Shaw, uh, oh. wrote the likes of A Moment of Romance Free, CJ7, Stephen Chow. I believe a lot of writers were on that, but she was one of them. One of the other writers is James uh, James Yun. He's a director and a writer of uh, comedies like My Wife is 18 with uh, Ikin Cheng and Charlie Choi. And a very, very good movie called Crazy in the City that um, takes a dark turn as so well. That's very effective. It stars Ethan Chan, Francis um, as um, as a person who's not really right in the head. And uh, it's a very, in a way, lovely Hong Kong movie, a genuine Hong Kong movie, but with a, a mean streak of uh, of sorts. It was, it was made in uh, 2004, 5, 6 or something like that. But um, that shows that we obviously talk David Land with the director uh, wasn't uh, this pornographic director. Therefore, you have actual crew on this that uh, had life before, during and after this movie, yeah, despite right. having written Hong Kong Gigolo. They didn't uh, sink into the swamp of... Uh, of uh, anonymity after uh, writing a gigolo movie or anything because in hong kong cinema that um that was okay um so yeah we are going to just mention that um hong kong gigolo had a universe dvd release that was letterboxed and came from a cinema print with burned in subtitles looked absolutely fine though very sharp for what it is uh, but it's a 20-year-old DVD. It's expectedly out of print, and there's no reissue on the horizon. And I couldn't find any secondhand uh, uh, listings. Um, sadly, sometimes you do, and then you find like uh, one copy, one ninety-three on Amazon Marketplace. Sure, and I mean US dollars and not Hong Kong dollars. Nope, the <laughs> torrent it is, or finding it on YouTube it is. But um, in this case, I um, I had the old DVD and. Uh, uh, look looked like on, on, on the level of like a laser disc or even a little bit better than a laser disc. So um, uh, all good if you can find it. So don't f- don't fear the burned in subtitles. Not a whole lot of uh, wacky kooky subtitles on, on this one. They they um there's a reason I think that we connected to the drama because it wasn't laced with uh, with yeah. uh, crappy subtitles all throughout. So. Right. Cool. We are going to take a musical break and then we're going to fast forward to 2017 and the Herman Yao Anthony Wong joint the Sleep Curse. And uh, as we prepared for this show, uh, this was a first-time watch for me. I didn't catch it uh, back uh, on its release. So, uh, fresh movie for both of us. Uh, So, is it in uh, the same league as Ebola Syndrome and Untold Story? Is it even uh, comparable to them? We'll see. So, listen to a bit of music from The Sleep Curse, and we'll be right back.
and welcome back. And before we get to the sleep curse uh, section, we're going to track back a little uh, to a few things that we um, that we forgot. And uh, full disclosure, it's not the same day right now as the prior recording. A few things happened between that recording and this recording. Joshua forgot a few things he wanted to say because uh, how could we miss uh, referencing in full and length in, in in a lengthy fashion? The poop scene, and what I mean by the <laughs> what I mean by the poop scene. Poor old Alex Mann and his uh, poor luck, uh, having to crawl and bark like a dog, like the most demeaning thing you can do, and then eat literally shit in front of his son. So that's just pure maximized melodrama that I didn't, I didn't mind it that much. <laughs> I mean, it can go ever so wrong, like melodrama up the. You know, to a tenth degree, but Alex Mann is good enough to sell the dramatics there, and uh, and and why not go as low as possible? And that is going as low as possible. So uh, I didn't mind the poop scene. Certainly, it should be more quotable, and this is what we're doing right now. We're we're quoting it uh, as we should. So do do, do you remember offhandly? This is like the movie is going way too hard for the <laughs> for the dramatic beats and the melodramatic beats. So. It's uh, it's pretty disturbing. It's like a very disturbing scene the way it's set up, um, especially the son being forced to watch his dad. Because it's not just you know, in and out little poop here. That's it. It's like, you know, a bunch of thugs breaking into the apartment and they're making him eat dog food. Uh, you know, they're making him you know, like you said, crawl around. The son is squalling, crying. The father's there trying to protect the son and doing anything he can just to get these thugs out of here. And then, yeah, and then sure enough, being forced to eat uh, dog poop. It's like, it's brutal. It's a brutal scene. Um, like, like an ungodly amount of setbacks for that character. Yeah, and it's like, it's just people screaming and crying for like five minutes straight. It's like uh, a little unnerving, but uh, yeah, definitely one of, the, one of the standout scenes in the movie we probably should have mentioned. But I know we briefly touched on it but we didn't get into the full you know description of events and yeah it definitely deserves that now you have it now you have it there's dog poop eating in this movie and and spoilers i suppose but it's such a uh, unknown movie so who cares but uh, there, there, there was a little weird unexplained uh, thing that you either buy not buy go with not go with when simon yam's sister is shot um his policewoman sister during this very um, badly planned uh, operation where, where the sort of a vindictive uh, westerner that simon yam rejects puts uh, his sister in harm and she's shot in the legs which is a very brutal scene and he feels it and you call it weird twin magic that's yeah, that's exactly what it was. He's at he was like at a dinner or something, right? And like all of a sudden he starts, oh, something's wrong, and he has to run to go find her. And sure enough, doesn't he find her? Yeah, of course he 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 he's he, he uh, the weird twin magic works. Like it's like a dog sniffing out danger, you know. He just runs through the streets until he finds his uh, sister who's been shot at that very moment. I mean, Hong Kong's probably not that big of a place, right? I mean, uh, if you're as fit and uh, as um, uh, as great of a man and gigolo as Simon Yam is, you run. You run Forrest, run. Uh, so, so yeah, those are two things to mention. And 
you know, things quickly date when, when you talk of something, something new happens. And we, we mentioned Bruce Willis talking a little bit about uh, uh, actors just working in whatever types of movies, uh, highbrow, low class, whatever kind of movie. Simon Yam was the kind of actor who uh, praised and emphasized that you should, should never say no because you never know how, how long it's gonna, going to last. And you talked a little bit about Bruce Willis's um, streak of direct-to-video uh, or mm-hmm. direct-to-digital type of movies and he that is not uh, putting in that much of an effort. They're just churning them out and uh, he's getting his million dollars per movie and he's not that engaged anymore. And uh, I think it was an open secret in some circles that um, he's doing all this because he's not well. And that's now official. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to talk uh, about the condition because I don't know too much about it. So I'll let you, the, pro- uh, the professional, tell listeners uh, what uh, did the family say that uh, Bruce Willis uh, is uh, diagnosed with? Apparently just uh, he's suffering from aphasia. That's all they've said. Um, which is like a you know language deficit, you know, unable to speak, you know, sometimes unable to comprehend language and whatnot. Usually, aphasia, you know, as far as you know what I know and what I've experienced, is like a secondary thing. Like uh, usually, somebody has Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia or what have you, and usually, aphasia is a symptom related to that. You know, certain part of the brain has you know, stop processing. Uh. I remember an episode of House. I remember something from TV, Joshua, <laughs> <laughs> where uh, this patient was trying to say, let's say he was trying to say, uh, my knee hurts, but uh, another word came out. He, he was fully coherent, but the right word wasn't coming out. So uh, maybe, maybe he was trying to say, my knee hurts, and all he could say was potato. He didn't have uh, trouble there. Uh, uh, verbalizing or anything, but I don't know if that falls under the aphasia umbrella. I'm trying to think what part of the brain it is that controls language. Um, don't you remember from school? I, t- <laughs> I mean, I, I was thinking Wernicke, but I was thinking of Wernicke's encephalopathy, which is like a form of kind of dementia that you get with um, like alcoholism. But uh, yeah, Wernicke's section of the brain i think is controlled it depends like some people can get trauma and things like that and you know hit a certain side of their head and like you know maybe you know blood spills out whatever or just causes trauma to that particular area and you'll find some people produce what they call word salad which is like an incomprehensible you know amount you know just like tuna tuna alcohol lampshade banana boat that's the stuff I remember from House. Uh, right. And and they may sometimes not because they could have other things going on, but sometimes they'll have, you know, complete understanding of everything that's going on around them and understanding of what you're saying, you know, and be able to read and things like that. But when it comes to actually verbalizing their speech, that's what they produce, you know. There's a lot of different things like that that can happen with um you know, trauma or a stroke or even dementia, like we're talking about, can all be things that cause aphasia, um, you know, word salad or what have you. But, uh, yeah, we don't, I don't know that they've released anything other than stating aphasia. And I believe there may be forms of aphasia um, that are just primary, primary aphasia, where it's, that's the only thing, you know. 
well, 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 the thing is, he's uh, he, he is retiring, so they're not. Um, I mean, I, I I never knew, but I always thought like, does he really need to do this many? quick DTV movies for a million dollars you'd think he was set financially but then again I don't know or maybe they wanted to sort of keep him keep him active to see what it does to his condition I don't know or, or looking back on it it's like you know the guy's just trying to set his you know ensure that his family's set up for life you know so it's like you know I can understand that definitely when I heard that back in the day and when i said back in the day like a year ago when someone said that it's an open secret he's ill and when the movies keep being stacked upon each other each movie uh, each month a new bruce willis movie where he appears for 10 minutes um, you think like there is something going on here this isn't desperation for work desperation to stay relative it seemed like there was a pattern here to get as much work in and um, finances in and then get a natural break from the industry and uh, maybe he worked until he couldn't and uh, now we're simply not going to get any more uh, more movies uh, but uh, it certainly won't uh, ruin his uh, long-lasting reputation of course uh, this uh, streak of uh, from the last few years of uh, of uh, cheaper films god that i've never watched any of them because as like uh, fun as it is to follow the discussion online like the latest Bruce Willis movie is in it for 10 minutes it looks so bored it's like I, I, I have no interest to experience that I really don't um, the fun stops right there at that comment I read I don't need to watch a 90 minute movie to see uh, oh yeah he's bored again he's not good again uh, and knowing that he possibly is sick I just made me kind of uncomfortable to sit there and watch so I simply skipped those uh, dozens of uh, movies that I can't even name now. They're so sort of generic in their titles. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so um, uh, best of luck uh, to him. Uh, recovery is obviously not something that uh, is uh, easy, if uh, at all possible. I don't know. But, uh, likely not. Likely not. No. Uh, but yeah, so so we wanted to touch upon a couple of points here in the in the between period. Um, between recordings there there were a couple of points we wanted to touch upon but let's go over to the sleep curse we've been uh stay, staying up all night to just losing sleep all, all over these missed points and uh <laughs> and the bruce willis uh, discussion but now now it's now it's done and now we move on to the movie the sleep curse from 2017 a plot from letterboxd lam sikka played by anthony wong was a young translator who collaborated with the uh, with the anime during J- Japan's wartime occupation of Hong Kong. He is tormented by guilt after turning his back uh, on a comfort woman who was mercilessly murdered. 45 years later, this uh, movie is set in 1990, so that's the cut to uh, uh, 45 years uh, gap between uh, war times, and then we end up in 1990. So 45 years later, his sin comes back to haunt his son who is also played by Anthony Wong. He is a professor specializing in sleeping disorders who begins a terrible experiment to exercise his father's ghost. And sounds like uh, when you read that plot, it's um, like a mental thing. He wants to exercise his father's ghost by experimenting, but there might be something else going on. (laughs) Whether we spoil that fully or not, we'll see. But um, you know very well from uh, doing this show for 10 years, Joshua, that uh, Anthony Wong and Herman Yao is a combination. Hell yeah, it is. They're collaborators and best friends, and uh, they're collaborating so frequently with his best friend in, in any genre. Obviously, the duo 
are going to be remembered uh, mainly for their wild and widely graphic category free outings, Untold Story, Ebola Syndrome. I would rather say that I remember their lower rated, um, not excess, but their lower rated movies uh, much better. I like Taxi Hunter quite a bit, which is a vigilante film. And also the comedy Cop Image, where uh, Anthony Wong plays a cop. It's a very amusing, very witty uh, comedy. But uh, as for the sleep curse, uh, Anthony actually saw the sleep curse uh, representing a period on the type of films he's been in. He, he said to Yahoo that the sleep curse would, would be the last horror or thriller movie he'd do. He was not cancelling his BFF friendship with Herman, of course, but uh, the working actor that Anthony is made a choice back then to back away from more intense genres to focus on others. And as he said, quote, everyone has their limits. And uh, who could blame him? He's worked so much. He, he, he doesn't need to do Ebola syndrome in 2017, of course. Um, uh, he has since worked with Herman again, so obviously that is true. They haven't turned their back on each other. And while 2020's film, uh, Legally Declared Dead, does seem like a thriller, I'm sure Anthony meant more intense films leaning towards horror are not his priority now. So he, he kind of wants to get away from the grim and the gore, I suppose. And, and after the likes of the Sleep Curse, uh, for instance... Uh, Anthony received major acclaim for his performance in the 2018 drama Still Human about the relationship between a paralyzed man that he plays and his uh, Filipina domestic uh, worker. Not seen that movie, but I'm quite keen to do so. Uh, he won a Hong Kong Film Award for his performance, and um, so that was uh, something he uh, sought after and uh, earned claim for. The Sleep Curse itself got two nominations, one from the Hong Kong Film Critics Society Awards, nominating... Michelle Wai as uh, Best Actress, and the Macau International Movie Festival nominated Anthony Wong in the Best Actor category. And in terms of box office of The Sleep Curse, I spoke a little to Paul Fox and Kevin Ma of the East Screen, West Screen podcast, and their estimate, estimation was that it was a low earner, The Sleep Curse, and didn't stick around in theaters for very long. We're talking perhaps one to two million Hong Kong dollars in terms of box office. But um, director Herman Yao had an action hit that year with Shockwave, starring Andy Lau. And uh, that was the mo- among the top three earners locally that year, along with uh, Pang Ho Chung's Love Off the Cuff and Choi Hak's Journey to the West, The Demons Strike Back, which is not the sequel to Stephen Chow's Journey to the West movie, but um, the, it's the second Stephen Chow uh, Journey to the West movie in a row kind of he produced that film but it was a Choi Hak directed Journey to the West The Demons Strike Back new cast compared to the first uh, Journey to the West um, with Shu uh, Chi and all of that so have you seen Shockwave I mean um, has it turned up uh, on streaming so you, you thought like hey Andy Lau uh, there's a terrorist in a tunnel I've had the opportunity to watch but I haven't watched it yet I know there's a sequel too right uh, unrelated sequel because um, it uh, can't be a related sequel, let's just say that. <laughs> uh, but it was a good uh, good uh, blockbuster action picture, and uh, as we'll detail uh, in my notes, uh, Herman Yao has kind of turned to that now, after mixing and matching all kinds of movies throughout his career. Now he's uh, a blockbuster director, earning money, all the money, uh, in China or Hong Kong, mainly China, I think. Anyway, onto the sleep curse in terms of uh, brief opinions. Uh, both of us... Um, first time viewers of this uh, film uh, so it's a professional decently involving work without sp- spiking as such um, 
it's a professional, decently paced dis- uh, distraction with elements of black magic, war atrocities. There's some stuff for the gorehounds too, so decent and pleasing without lingering as other Yao Wong joints, category three and not has done in the past. Um, so I mean, it, it's not essential, but uh, I, I didn't mind spending. 100 minutes with this at all actually not at all yeah i thought it was uh i'm hesitant to say the word great but uh i did enjoy it thoroughly it's kind of like herman yao and uh wong do a modern asian horror you know like a post 2000s asian horror film but mixed in with you know kind of like the the nastiness that they were known for during the 90s you know all without it being this uh 90s throwback though because it isn't this sleaze right, fest it's not. it's not like there's no dopey stuff there's no uh, bad poorly staged softcore scenes or anything it's it, it's 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 a thriller horror film that sticks with that it's professional and it earns its category free rating eventually i'd say and, and it's not just uh nastiness through and through it's like you messaged me and we're like you know i don't know why this got its category three rate oh now i do okay yeah <laughs> Maybe I should finish it first. <laughs> it's got, it's yeah, it's it's definitely uh, there's some nastiness at the beginning, but then the last act is where it really gets uh, gruesome and uh, harrowing. No nudity, as far as I remember, even with the comfort yeah. women, comfort women and uh, raping, so they they don't go for that. Uh, being set in 1990, the, the home video opening is ex- expected to be a little bit uh, a retro throwback. Uh, they seem to spend a decent amount of time on design here to make us uh, uh, believe that this is uh, 1990. So the, this uh, home video uh, montage shot by someone showing uh, one of the inflicted uh, yeah. uh, people of the possible sleep curse going from good times uh, during their birthday party to a father growing darkering demeanor due to insomnia and uh, there's a little bit of tropey stuff uh, in terms of the video image being affected yeah. by whatever presence is here uh, it's a it's a little bit like a found footage uh, tropey here but not to the point where you say to yourself oh they're not capable right now mm-hmm. this is all tropey and cliched but it's that kind of um vibe that you know i don't think Herman sat for two years and conceptualized this entire movie i think this is a more about quick and dirty to the point use what we know draw upon some cliches and capture the the possible ghostly presence and the cursy stuff within the video footage uh, do some post-production stuff to affect the video image and and, and you have some decent horror jolts mm-hmm. it's not uh a terrible revisit to tropes that might be very familiar as you said to early 2000s asian horror stuff whether japan korea or even hong kong yeah i mean heck even even herman uh, dipped his toe into that stuff i remember he did a movie called nightmare in precinct seven and it's all uh it's all drawn upon ring mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> and anyway it was a big uh, a big budget joint joint diver it's one of those well get it in there because it's uh it's uh it's hot shit so we got we, we got to have the image of the long hair something something whether she's in the tv or not yeah and you know I, when i say like asian horror like the modern or you know past 20 years asian horror it, it's not necessarily the creepy girl in this movie although there is somewhat of that it, it's more just the you know 
very nuanced and kind of plotting pace, you know, like, you know, we're going to get to the scares, but we're going to, you know, slowly kind of get there. We're going to put an atmosphere out. We're going to, you know, it's got, obviously it's got the, um, supernatural element to it as well yeah i wouldn't say how well that era of asian horror plays nowadays if it's all on a case-to-case basis yeah. uh, i do enjoy uh, watching some of the um, early 2000s korean horror films mm-hmm. uh, and the select ones out of japan i've seen still work very well i mean even even movies like phone from korea like sounds like the dopiest stuff ever it's not. It's good, not. Yeah. Phone was pretty good. He's got a creepy oh, yeah. kid and then some, and uh, some good dread. And uh, yeah, but 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 I do remember mostly. This is possibly not connected to the sleep curse at all. The best movies from that period, where we're talking Korea, for instance, were the more um, slow, understated one. I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. saw the Uninvited. Oh, did I? Well, well, the thing is, there is an American movie called The Uninvited, which is a remake of Tale of Two Sisters. But The Uninvited oh. in Korea is a different, uh, is a different movie. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, but a very slow and not. It doesn't got. It doesn't have those constant jolts or anything. But uh, takes its time and is very quiet most of the time, which I quite uh, quite liked. And this resembles that ever so slightly in terms of it isn't boom, boom, boom all the time. It's also on the move uh, fairly quickly and and quite a bit uh, constantly. So they're uh, they're putting the pieces down. They're using the running time effectively in terms of uh, that. You know, Anthony Wong has this big lecture on the stages of sleep in the beginning of the film uh, and then you get to see the char- him and the character Monique uh, reunite we, which was strange because the actress uh, Jojo Go looks very young and they talk about meeting 10 years ago she looks like an in her mid-twenties here so I thought yeah. 10 years ago <laughs> what's, what kind of sleazy stuff did they do in Venice 10 years ago but uh, when all is said and done, it isn't this anxious lease and violence first. It's a real movie. I don't know if Herman is like aiming to like, I'm, I'm going to bring my A-game horror-wise and everyone's going to love me for it. It's simply it's got decent jolts here and there that, that are effective during the running time of the movie. And then it's out of your consciousness. Like, like for instance, when her father, I believe, just wakes up with a bang and uh, gets out of his restraints and just screams i don't want to sleep i don't want to sleep runs out of the hospital gets hit by a car and dies that kind of um intensity i thought like yeah this looks pretty decent but he isn't elevating his horror game but maybe he's not aiming to either it's uh, it's a dirty little quickie in a way <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know if they were going out to try and just like this is our last hoorah you know between the two of us but it certainly seems like that like uh, you know i feel like it's like let me take everything that i've learned since that we made those movies together that all those weirdo western fans seem to like and uh let's uh, try to make something you know creative and also you know disgusting i i agree it doesn't seem like it's their last hurrah so let's um let's party like it's 1995 or yeah, anything yeah, yeah. It, arguably uh, gong tao an oriental black magic which herman Yao made in like 20 um, 2007 that is more of that it's yeah, really yeah. gross and it's got titties and uh tons of more black black magic and he kills babies and uh uh, it, it, it's all good. It's uh, unashamed uh, graphic stuff. This is a little bit more reeled in than that. So right. 
I would say that this is like a mix of things. Like, let's if I knew what I was doing back then, you know, this is maybe what I would be working with. You know what I'm saying? Like, just mixing and matching of um, what we've learned plus what got us there. The the scene I thought was was going to be the only scene where it earned its category three rating, and I had a little bit of a chuckle, uh, chuckle because it seems rather easy for Anthony Wong to sl- they're, they're in uh, Malaysia at this point, so it seems rather easy for Anthony Wong to slip in, cut the brain out of Monique's father, yeah. and just leave. Yeah, and he does it uh, clinically and uh, efficiently. There uh, he. Um, he uh, turns that uh, body uh, inside out, opens up and turns the things inside out and gets the brain and then off it goes. Moral and ethics, uh, they're pretty dubious in that character, but he wants to solve a mystery, even though his tone and demeanor isn't necessarily warm, but perhaps there is some devotion there. Perhaps he wants to help Monique, perhaps he's simply doing it for for the sake of her father and not because he's obsessed uh, by her but he, he is rather demeaning he calls the security god stupid and uh, so you you don't know where you have anthony's character which is interesting enough it, this uh, you you don't know how selfish his uh, motives are and um what i was also thinking while doing that scene but also um uh, during the scene where he places the the brain in a plastic bag in preservative liquid and then puts that bag into a durian to ship back to Hong Kong and I was just thinking Josh is just sitting there fuming like <laughs> that's not how anatomy works you can't store a brain in preservative preserved preservative liquid and then a plastic bag inside a durian you can't do that I was more upset with the fact that he uh, cut his whole face off to get to the skull. And I'm thinking, <laughs> didn't he have just peeled back the forehead slightly? You know what I'm saying? And been able to basically achieve the same results. Because I'm like, I'm thinking about the poor family. If they're going to do like an open casket funeral or something like that. There's no way you're getting somebody's entire face back on to well, well, he know, did, dead as a matter tissue. Of fact. He- oh, yeah, I know. And it looked perfect. But I'm like... Think about like the poor lady that got attacked by like a what was that a gorilla or a um, ape or whatever and had her face chewed off and they did the face transplant and like you can it's her face has that you know saggy kind of look because you know it's you know putting tissue back onto you know what I'm saying onto muscle and ligaments and all that's not that easy and he did it in a night because he's he d- he didn't man he's he's good he's good he should do plastic surgery. So, so that was its. Uh, yeah, I, I can see he has the category three rating because it's a pretty graphic. Yeah. Uh, that's dissection, if uh, if you will. Um, but uh, but no, the, the category three stuff will uh, will happen during the end, where where, where the gorehounds will get their uh, jolts, I suppose. And and oddly enough, I mean, but by this point we're almost transi- transitioning into uh, the 1940s here. But Herman practices his. Uh, quiet and not quiet jump scares as we we see a ghost as Anthony Wong turns off the light in a room then he turns turns it on but the ghost is closer ah. which is not the freshest horror attack out there but I don't know man it uh, it wasn't too bad uh, and he's not hinging the entire movie on these kind of techniques anyway one thing and I don't know if we're going to go into full spoiler territory but I did like in the moment it doesn't seem to make sense but like Anthony Wong's reaction to the ghosts and stuff like that. It's kind of like a, oh, 
that caught me off guard, but let me just keep moving and going about my day. Instead of like a normal person's reaction, be like, oh my God, what the fuck? But, you know, in in reality, he has some experience, it seems, with the, these visions. Yeah, uh, there's some decent breadcrumbs uh, left there for, mm-hmm. uh, for, for a second viewing, I suppose. Uh, and uh, it continues to be wholly professional, of course, even the stuttery, jittery imagery and the editing and the images that the company ghostly cites. All functional uh, without uh, Herman stretching himself. And uh, then we transition into the Japanese section. And I guess I appreciated that because uh, uh, over what uh, the, the occupation section, uh, it's set in Hong Kong, but it's uh, the Japanese occupation of uh, 1940s Hong Kong. And I appreciated that um, I, I, I couldn't predict that structure necessarily, that we were going to transition into a, a fairly meaty. Uh, backstory where Anthony plays his uh, own uh, he plays his father uh, and uh, with some a little bit different makeup and um, haircut and haircut indeed and uh, it's hard to explain but I, I started to feel like the mixture is beginning to feel neat the issue with insomnia the issue with possibly a curse the issue with how it connects to the past and even having black magic within that connecting them to the damn present of 1990s i thought i was like yeah i'm it's 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 good it's good it's not phenomenal but it's good i like how these pieces are connecting it's entertaining that uh, they weave this particular web if you will uh, trying to build something uh, greater and uh, get into a crescendo all without constantly i mean we touched on tropes and cliches but to state really clearly herman isn't this insecure kid that does it every five minutes he drops into the Asian horror stuff ever so slightly, but most of the time this is uh, uh, this is a decent enough storytelling that is uh, quiet and straightforward and uh, focusing on performances, of course. Uh, so there isn't like a ton of like like five point one blogs. <laughs> no. Be- uh, because here I think he's good. He's a good enough director by now, certainly as he has directed since uh, the late eighties where he doesn't need to fall into that and instead transition into the past and then familiarize ourselves with uh, some different kind of circumstances and then bring in the elements of like, like how how would black magic fit into this? And that, in all honesty, it's not, uh, it's, it's not great uh, expert filmmaking and it's not a great scholar opinion or anything, but it creates curiosity. And I was happy with that. That I was mm-hmm. curious about where is this going? How does it connect to the past, and how will it connect going forward? Yeah, I, I liked that too. That we didn't just jump into this backstory. That we kind of seemed to get there on our own. Like it didn't. It wasn't pushed. And when it did show up, it wasn't like disorienting or anything like that. It was just it was well well played. You know, uh, a decently scripted uh, film. Yeah, disor- disorienting uh, is a good uh, point to bring up. Uh, arguably, I might not have connected all the dots, but I was, uh, I felt uh, the conclusion without spoiling the very final conclusion, I suppose, uh, was uh, communicated well enough. And that means prior in the film, he has done so as well. He has put down the breadcrumbs for us and then uh, without doing continu- like, like five-minute exposition a la Psycho. At the end, mm-hmm. explaining it all yeah. like it, like it doesn't need to, <laughs> which is very amusing. Everyone loves Psycho, but no one really likes the five to ten minutes exposition dump. That uh, I'm a doctor, so let me explain a few things to you. So yeah, and and by that point in the 
post Hong Kong section where we also see um, Gordon Lam here as a, a another traitor, another Hong Konger that uh, betrays his people and starts working for the Japanese. Enjoys it a lot more than Anthony Wong. Um, Anthony Wong does. So within this section too. One of the things I enjoyed the most when I realized that Herman is not afraid to be cliched was when he added a blood-curdling scream to a jump scare when we see one of the comfort women, one of the key ones, as a weird eye. And he adds this like very post-processed, literally screechy scream to that site. It's like he's he's confident enough to uh, to jolt us doing that. The ambiguous nature of Anthony's character in, in, in the present, uh, whether he's helpful, whether he's selfish, uh, whether he's experimenting on Monique like a mouse for his own benefit, for his own research. Was that at all interesting to follow? Because you can't really get a grip on him if he's doing it, because if he's obsessed by her, or if he's just doing it to get his uh, research grant or get some research done, whatever the cost. Like, is Anthony good enough uh, Good enough an actor to follow where, despite us not knowing or even liking what he's doing? Is Anthony Wong a good enough actor? <laughs> Sometimes even he admits that he's certainly not because he d- just does stuff for money. I, <laughs> I think he's great here. I think uh, he sells everything. Like I said, you know, just mentioning those little breadcrumbs, like you mentioned, it's like in those scenes, like, you know, just perfect reaction to you know give you something make you think one thing during the first viewing but in the second make you think something completely else the reasoning for his character doing much of what he does is just like it's complex you know like he has at first it seems like he's just like an old pervert with this young woman but obviously there's something pushing him to study this sleep cycles the way that he does, you know, and we don't really understand it until much later in the film. And even then we get a further understanding of it when we get the, you know, final reveals during the last five minutes or so. Do do, 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 do you know, by the way, if the, the, the gas they talk of that, they, uh, that they uh, uh, pour into the test room that Monique, is saying is that do, do, do you know if they name that gas or if that is a real thing that you get higher uh, inhaling they didn't name it but i highly don't th- i don't think that that's real he said that it re- it renews some kind of protein in the brain or whatever and in my head i'm going okay you have one can apparently because you know i sit there and load somebody up with an oxygen tank you know and if i'm given four or five liters uh, I'll sit there and you know traipse them down to CT, bring them back to their room, and by the time I get back, half the tank is gone. So you're talking about having that little bitty tank fill up that entire room every 12 hours. Yeah, you you get through one tank per 12 hours, you know. So yeah, that's horseshit. Yeah, that's the <laughs> yeah that's the new angle, regardless to the research he does towards the end of the film. Uh, Monique is uh, also suffering from this insomnia and uh, that, that is his plan to to get protein back into this uh, person's brain to study if uh, this curse can be beaten or, or what have you so uh, I, I did find it interesting that we didn't quite know if his uh, w- w- what his motivations were if they were purely scientific or not or if he enjoyed for some reason seeing his old friend who has rejected him in the past 
uh, break down in front of him. So, um, uh, but but yeah, I was wondering, and I, I don't think I don't think we will spoil the ending, but it, it might be unavoidable to, because we we so desperately want to talk of maybe one of the most grisly, unexpected sights in the film uh, that definitely earned the movie its uh, category three. So let me just say this, Joshua. I didn't expect full frontal male nudity. Did you? I did not. <laughs> of all things to come out of this film, that was the least expected. I mean, that's a thing we can reference. I think that there is an evil Japanese yeah. commander here that gets his comeuppance. How, how so, Joshua? <laughs> oh, well, this is uh, during a uh, flashback in the 1940s or 1930s, I guess it was. Wasn't that was 39 or 43? I can't remember. Anyway, during Second World War, Anthony Wong's character's been awake for days and days and days, and it's almost like he's possessed at this point by the spirit of a young woman that he did not save, could not save um, from the uh, Japanese. And, uh, yeah, he breaks into this guy's house, Ties him up to the bedpost, four-point restraints, reveals his penis, and proceeds to grab it with his hand with a meat cleaver in the other. The shots are, you know, it cuts to his face, cuts to the guy's face with blood splattering everywhere. I mean, they could show the build, but they couldn't show, um, maybe couldn't show the act technically, probably couldn't show it with a category three rating. (laughs) Because that kind of effect, by the way, part of me, would be stuff like, um, what's the German direct, one of the premium sort of German splatter directors? Olaf Olaf Ittenbach. That's right. That's the kind of stuff he could do and would do and show us. August Underground 2 or whatever. I remember there was a nasty one in that. But but, but I didn't expect um, such extreme violence in a movie that seems to like yeah it had its category free moment that'll look good on a poster and we have the pos- possible possession stuff the curse and you stuff got all and- the, the drug stuff too i was like okay well that'll get you the category three as well you know and i don't know i'm easy to please but uh <laughs> vi- good violence is still uh, good movie violence is still good movie violence and i was pleased especially when and and i won't spoil it too much what specifics here but especially when the japanese uh, take out one of their hong kong characters and then some by shooting that character to bits <laughs> not shooting him once or twice nah. and he's dead just shooting to bits. bits until he's in bits yes. um it's it's done with intermittent crap cg gore mixed with squibs so yeah so so the sequence is okay but uh, it, it was almost gleefully sadistic because Japanese. <laughs> the Japanese <laughs> evil characters. The evil Japanese. So, so I, I have to say it's not something that will get me into the, the elite club of uh, film critics, but um, I was satisfied with the violence. Don't you think that that comes a little bit from a couple of decades worth of excess that you can still sort of pull that off well? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... I think that's knowing the audience, knowing the censors, knowing what he can get away with. There's probably another cut of this movie somewhere with even more graphic content. You know, kind of like what uh, Scorsese would do, which is you know shoot stuff that's you know even more violent than expected, and then you know cut out what you didn't plan on keeping anyway. You know, and still 
managing to end up with wildly disgusting sequences oh, yeah. in the film. So just, oh, yeah. just go for it and then see how much they will cut out. <laughs> and what I won't spoil, but uh, the, the only note uh, the only note I will mention about the ending is I was also satisfied with the fairly freaky horror images towards the end of the film where it's all revealed motivations and mm-hmm. who characters are and how it all ties ties into i mean that's a minor spoiler i suppose but how it all ties into uh, curse and black magic and uh, that kind of pra- uh, that kind of practice and i have to say reveals can get really clunky sometimes and especially when there's a lot of reveals to do right i thought herman um, did well being verbal with his reveals to tie the knot on the story and a couple of visual reveals for us to go, ah, and I am the dumbest viewer in the world and I still got this to a decent degree. Um, so, for for instance, he, he shows uh, a particular uh, a particular sign uh, of the name of a road toward, towards the end of the film and without having someone in voiceover going, Oh my God! It's in the same place. <laughs> he he doesn't need to do that, and I, I was fairly impressed by that and 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 satisfied. So, I've used the word jolts and I suppose injections and uh, little little horror hits. Uh, um, they were here, and going in blind because I had no idea what the sort of rep was for sleep curse. I tried to find. I knew they had done something something somewhat graphic, recent uh, in recent years. Right, so I tried to find that movie, and I think it's Sleep Curse based on that type of research. But still, this was a no expectations, no knowledge of twists or hype behind it. It was a uh, rather neat uh, to see. But in all honesty, Joshua, I've I've been more impressed seeing how Herman handles himself in blockbuster territory in action territory he's done really well lately shockwave is good i've heard shockwave 2 is even better it's not terribly um disturbing in terms of uh, its mainland china co-production aspect so it's not terribly compromised but do watch if you can it might still be free on prime the white storm 2 no relation to one white storm 2 is awesome almost a throwback to the wild Hong Kong action cinema with the unexpected action direction of uh, old-timey Hong Kong cinema, but in a somewhat sleeker package. There's a chase in the subway stations of Hong Kong, in that one, where Andy Lau and Louis Ku just drive down the, the escalators, just crashing that MTR station. Uh, it's obviously a lot of CG, but it looks excellent. And I, I've been really impressed with uh, Herman's stamina to perform um, and execute these blockbuster films so uh, it's been rather neat and uh, Herman is a director that's uh, been widely uneven just because his uh, volume of films are as great as they are so that that means movies are going to be widely uneven and no one's going to remember dating death because <laughs> you shouldn't but then her but b- back then Herman did a cheapo teenage horror film like that, turned around and then did a solid uh, drama or something. And won an award for it. Her- Herman always ca- com- came off as a filmmaker to me that as soon as the movie was in the can, uh, he was uh, off and running, probably had making half of the next movie already. 
because he never stopped to ponder his move. He believed in moving forward and thrusting forward and whether doing big or, big or small moves, it seems like that is uh, a goal of sorts. And in all honesty, I think he's made the only... Well, let me rephrase that. I haven't been interested in the whole Ip Man movie series, whether the official one or the unofficial one. I've seen Donnie's first. It's okay. Then Herman made his. Well, he made two. He made uh, one uh, with uh, a young Ip Man. And then he made Ip Man Final Fight starring Anthony Wong. And I couldn't wait to check that out because I just loved the feel and thought of Ip Man as an older man, Anthony Wong in a martial role, and Anthony Wong being into it, trying to convey the, the demeanor and the dignity of Ip Man. And it was terrific. I really loved Ip Man Final Fight. That's the Herman I still know. He navigates he he, he navigates the genres quick and moves on quick and maybe maybe making big movies nowadays. He can't move on as quick. But still, um it, it's a nice fourth, fifth, second round of his career that he's, that he's enjoying now. And uh it's kind of cool. So uh whether he does these movies ever again. It's he, he's done well doing so, but uh, uh, Sleep Curse was a if it, if it represents a period for all of these uh, in, make, in making extreme films, it'll do. And we have the other ones too, uh, so I guess that's, yeah. uh, that's the final note. Uh, final note I have did, did, did you feel that all the threads that were in the movie and the reveals towards the end of the movie, did you feel um, it was a a cohesive, cohesive whole, concrete whole towards the end, or did you feel there there was um, some overstuffed, uh, overstuffed reveals towards the end, or what have you? Well, you know, part of me was like at at times going, "Ah, oh, you telling me that these two people have like this relation?" You know what I'm saying? Like the two stories kind of fit together. But then the other part of me was like, "This is a movie about a sleep curse being put on people." You know. That's sort of, you know, demanding that sort of logic seems a little ridiculous. But but overall, you know, I do think that they did it in about as believable a way as possible. And I think that uh, if you have any problems with this movie, that's probably not going to be one of them. I think it all comes together. And, and those images of horror um, towards the end, uh, if we keep it vague, uh, as unoriginal as they might have felt uh, the, the the gory images uh, for me as i said i thought they were fairly freaky and i actually enjoyed her performance quite a bit she's uh, not a frequent um, film actress uh, the young the, the young monique played by jojo go but uh, i thought she had this uh, mystique about her and yeah. uh, this maturity about her that i quite enjoyed and she's involved towards the end to uh, being part of some of the fairly freaky imagery and I, I i enjoyed that as unoriginal as they might look and feel as a matter of fact yeah i think that uh she got to branch out and do some very different things you know that character had some real big changes in her arc throughout the film so i was impressed with her she did great i, I have a feeling that her two movie credits uh it doesn't mean that she she's out of work. I just feel I do, I just have a feeling she, she she's a TV actress or something like that, or maybe a singer. Um. So um. So yeah. Uh. Cool that you thought it was pleasing. Uh. Pleasing as well because uh, I I I enjoyed it. Uh. uh for uh, as disposable as it might be, as a matter of fact. But uh, maybe we're more into it because we're we're kind of tuned in to the Herman Yao, Anthony Wong. Uh, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't hurt. 
but but I always found it to be heartwarming in a, in a way because he Anthony is upfront with saying that I did it for money and I didn't care what I was doing and I didn't <laughs> like the director didn't like the main actor and my my family needs food on the table so that's what I'm doing what I'm doing but then when he talks about Herman uh, he he respects him so much professionally and they're best friends as well it surely is a mix of a professional relationship but also playtime because uh, they're buddies and and it, it tends to show up in the films that they do that um anthony is so comfortable and so natural regardless of uh, if, if it's a mild role or in this case a bit more extreme role and dark role and uh, who can dislike that feeling uh, but I do actually check out Shockwave uh, again. It, it's a blockbuster action picture. Uh, nothing original about it, but um, I, I, I think uh, with with that notion in mind that Herman has done so many small films, and bad films, and Ebola films, <laughs> he does equip himself well uh, playing with the big boys and the big uh, big toys that he does. So um, and, and Shockwave Two is supposed to be even even bigger in terms of uh, its scenario as well. I mean, uh, Shockwave is mostly set in around a tunnel because that's where the terrorists uh, do the thing. So and that's where Andy Lau does his thing. As for availability for the Sleep Curse, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray in Hong Kong. And uh, we, we got a DVD for this uh, viewing. When I ordered it, uh, th- th- this is sort of a snapshot of the world as it is right now or rather now versus a few months ago i tried to order it from my regular regular site which is ddd house i use them for a liability and pricing i have for 20 years and they suspended uh, shipping to europe for a while they've lift as far as i know anyway i think i tried to select it and it simply said no it's suspended they've lifted it now and uh, that makes all the difference in the world because buying a blu-ray from or even DVD from Yes Asia or eBay, a single one, if DDD House uh, wasn't an option, just added like 150% cost for for me personally. So it was really like uh, I would have bought the Blu-ray in a heartbeat, but it was, let's just uh, say it would have been like 55 bucks for a Blu-ray from Yes Asia at that time uh, because DDD House didn't ship. And uh, the DVD ended up being, in all honesty, about forty US dollars to get to get to me, but it is for the show. And nowadays, I can finally re- order from DDD House again for maybe twenty-five to thirty shipped to me. You know, so the world is opening up, and the shipping is getting a bit milder in certain places, even if not all. But anyway, we're done for this episode. We are planning to do some more throwbacks to the heyday of uh, category three. Uh, Films in the 90s, early 2000s, trying to find some fun angles. And one of the movies, uh, uh, movie pair-ups we're doing in the future is Naked Poison 1 and 2. One, because I remember liking Naked Poison 1 quite a bit. It's from the director of the 33D Invader, Sex and Sen 2, The Forbidden Legend, Sex and Chopsticks. I mean, we're in. But Naked Poison 2 is, if memory serves, a director video, shot on video, rip-off, softcore rip-off of... <laughs> Christopher Nolan's Memento. Of course. So why wouldn't you want to examine that again? <laughs> for for me, yeah. for me, I've seen it once, but I haven't, uh, I haven't seen it in years. Uh, the only thing I don't think it did, but I might be wrong. I mean, my memory is so short, but I'm fairly certain that it uh, did not play out its event in events in reverse like Nolan's film did. But otherwise, it's that plotting of the memory loss and what have you. So 
Like, I don't remember if I had sex or not. <laughs> <laughs> Category free. <laughs> so yeah, we'll be doing that in the future. But uh, in the meantime, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. Social media links are available on the site. Hit us up on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review and stream us on Stitcher Radio, Spotify, wherever you find podcasts. So that's us, us, so let's stop the fucking and go to bed and dream sweet dreams or stay awake thinking of the cursed profession of gigolos. So that's us, I'm Sleazy K, and with me was the great Lord Joshua Regal. Say goodbye. Bye. Go to bed if you dare.